Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you very much for watching this video. And I do apologize for the rather drab surroundings here, but I'm recording this in a hotel room in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm preaching at Covenant Baptist Church just outside of Columbia, pastored by Charles Swan. If you happen to be living in this neck of the woods and are looking for a good doctrinally sound church to call your church home, I would highly commend it to you. Very, very good church, very doctrinally sound. And uh, Pastor Charles is just a, a wonderful, great, great guy. So on to the subject matter at hand. In the last several weeks, there has been a lot of discussion online about John MacArthur's wealth. And this is largely resultant from a from an article that Julie Royce wrote. And in this article, she portrays John MacArthur's lifestyle as one of opulence. And she said there's really no different between uh, there's no difference between John MacArthur's lifestyle and the lifestyle of the prosperity preachers whom he criticizes. And other well-known and vocal critics of John MacArthur have taken this and run with it, and they're plastering it all over social media and calling John MacArthur a hypocrite and all of that kind of stuff. And um, and so I saw all this, and I thought, you know. I'm just going to I'm going to contact Phil Johnson and see if he would like to discuss some of these things. And so I did and he was he was actually very eager to do so. Um uh he said, "Yeah, absolutely." And so I'm going to ask him about uh all this stuff in the article. I'm going to ask him if if these things are true or if they are distortions. And uh I tell you, I learned a lot just in doing this interview with Phil. I did not have any question about John MacArthur's character or integrity, but uh, I think when when by the end of this interview, uh, I, I really want Proverbs eighteen seventeen to ring loudly in your mind, in your heart, in your mind. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes along and examines him. So Phil's going to shed a lot of light on these issues, and we're not only going to talk about you know John MacArthur's supposed lavish lifestyle and nepotism and board members, uh, you know, his board is stacked with family members and all that kind of stuff. I'm also going to ask him about the mark of the beast. Uh, that's a, another thing that I get frequently uh, asked about. And, um, and also the issue over whether or not he was really in Memphis, Tennessee, when Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, that controversy that sprung up a couple of years ago now. And so so uh, we're going to cover a lot of territory here, and I think you will find this interview uh, very helpful. So I know that I did. All right, dear ones, without any further delay, here is Phil Johnson. Phil, uh, brother, thank you so very much for joining me for this interview, and I really appreciate you taking your time. And I'm doing this just to to give you an opportunity to answer some of these questions that have been floating out there that uh, largely come from a recent article by Julie Royce, in which she uh, alleges that MacArthur, John MacArthur, is is paid this exorbitant salary because from his part-time work at GTY, and then that's in addition to 
what he earns from the church or the master seminary. Of course, he's not in the, he's no longer the president of that. But, uh, and the gist of her article is that even though John MacArthur undeniably teaches against the prosperity message, uh, that his lifestyle is pretty much one and the same with the prosperity preachers. So, um, you know, and this article has been picked up by a number of John's critics and things like that. So take it away, Phil. What, what would you have to say some, to some of what she alleges? Yeah, first of all, I have deliberately not answered these questions online because I don't want to drag out a, uh, uh, a bunch of questions that actually better would have been directed specifically to our ministry by individuals who, who really have a legitimate uh, reason for asking. Uh, when uh, when these questions came in from someone you know pretending to be a investigative reporter who already had a, a long track record of trying to torpedo John MacArthur's reputation, uh, I refused to answer them, and, and I'm not going to give her publicity uh, by responding to you know people who who are championing her cause or going along with that or whatever. But I'm happy to answer the questions. And for you, I'll even answer them on a podcast. So I appreciate. Uh, but <laughs> as to the as to the question you raised about John MacArthur's lifestyle, I think it's significant and notable that no one who actually knows him, uh, no one who's ever been to his house or or uh, spent time with him on any significant level, no one has ever accused him of living a lavish millionaire's lifestyle. I think that was one of the criticisms that came from a video that that you uh, had. Uh, encouraged me to watch just because it is so bizarre and over the top. This guy was exaggerating everything he'd read in uh, some of the online articles. And, and that was the terminology he used. John MacArthur lives a lavish uh, millionaire's lifestyle. Just, uh, just, and just for fun, if you don't mind, Phil, tell, tell me what you tell us, what you just told me about uh, what he said about Austin Duncan. <laughs> He's trying to prove that, uh, that nepotism is a rife problem at Grace Church that all, you know, lots of people uh, hire their kids on the staff at Grace Church. Here's where it starts getting interesting. Pay attention. A family affair. The nepotism you need to understand in the mega church world is, uh, it's almost unheard of that there isn't nepotism. Let's put it that way. The pastor's children are employed by the church, and they're usually in a prominent position. They're usually waiting to take over the reins. Um, It happens at uh, Grace Community Church, not only with John MacArthur's sons, but with uh, friends of his. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. The truth is, not one of John MacArthur's kids is on staff at Grace Church. Not one. The truth is, not one of John MacArthur's kids is on staff at Grace Church. Not one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, the example he gave was that, uh, another example he gave, he says, John even hires his friend's kids. Austin Duncan is the son of Ligon Duncan. Uh, I believe Austin Duncan is an elder there, and his father is Ligon Duncan, a longtime friend of John MacArthur. It's a family affair, and it's a it, if you, if you're friends, you're going to be uh, promoted and, and and into some high position. 
Well, that's that's the most bizarre accusation I've ever heard. As far as I know, uh, Austin Duncan is not at all related to Ligon Duncan. And I know Ligon Duncan well enough to know that if anybody accused him of that, he would he would disown Austin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding about that, of course, but right. uh, they're not related. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it goes to some of the shoddy reporting and just carelessness with with these facts. So, yeah, yeah, there's a there seems to be a motive to uh, exaggerate and make it sound as bad as possible. Uh, this guy listed a bunch of my misdeeds, and and uh, each time he he mentioned it, he would say, uh, and there may be even more. I don't know, you know, or maybe he's done something illegal. In fact, he he seemed to ha- this was a sustained theme in his video that he uh, he seemed to believe that I'm guilty of some felony and that uh, the, the feds are on my tail. It's only a matter of time till I get arrested for some crime or corruption that I'm guilty of. Uh, it's that sort of rhetoric that I don't need to answer. And uh, I actually literally have a policy of generally not paying attention to it. Sometimes, uh, you know, my flesh gets the better of me and I'll fire off a a tweet in response and it always reminds me not to do that because then all the all these angry critics crawl out like little cockroaches and and see what they can do the other night they were uh, they there was this sustained campaign of about i don't know eight or nine people who were wanting to say that uh grace church is trying to cover something up because no announcement about the postponement of our shepherds conference was made on the uh, on last year's Shepherds Conference Twitter feed. It's a Twitter feed that I think has had three posts made to it since last year's wow. conference was over. Nobody's keeping it up. Uh, but because the announcement of the cancellation, which went viral on Friday, uh, right. but it wasn't, it wasn't noted on that one Twitter account. And when I pointed out, that's a dead Twitter account. It hasn't been posted on, you know, since last October, I think. Uh, all these people angrily said, no, you're trying to cover something up. And they were just certain that something untoward is going on. And uh-huh. it's that sort of uh, uh, cynical, purposeful skepticism that I just refuse to uh, keep answering, acknowledging and whatever. I'm happy to point it out for you, but, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to play ping pong back and forth with people who have that kind of motive so, right. Yeah. One of the points in the article, Phil, was that, um, and I've, I've heard you address this, but so all of our listeners can see it and viewers, uh, this first edition King James Bible that was given to MacArthur and this, you know, valued at, I don't even know how much, a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And that's evidence of John MacArthur's greed and uh, lavish lifestyle. What would you, what would you say to that point? Well, he's not a very he's not a very good uh, uh, miser if greed is his motiv- motivation because he turned around and gave it away. He put it in the seminary's rare book collection, uh, and um, uh, somebody somebody saw that and said, "Yeah, but he took a tax deduction for that." Yeah, well, it, he deducted the amount that he was charged for the gift in the first place because that's right. when you give someone a gift like that, they they have to report it on their taxes. So. It was a wash. Nobody made any money on it, but it adds a, a rare, uh, an important Bible to the seminary's collection. So yeah. uh, the people who actually donated the money for it had no complaint about it. That's that's what they wanted to do. So so right. we did it, and you know that shows up on a uh, on the nine ninety for that year, and 
uh, muckrakers pull that out and try to make it sound like something really awful is going on. But yeah. uh, I'd like to point out that, you know, every five years or so, we, we have some kind of celebration for the, for the milestone that John MacArthur has reached. He's been at Grace Church for 52 years, and uh, mm-hmm. that is extremely rare these days. And I don't know of another pastor in the past 200 years that has uh, been at the same pulpit for that long and preached through every single verse in the New Testament, produced a commentary on every single verse in the New Testament. And we don't send him on luxury vacations or, or uh, you know, buy him luxury items or anything like that. We give him a, a, a rare Bible and he gives it away. And people treat that as if that's proof that he is a, a greed monger. I, yeah. I just think the, the fact that someone wants to make that into an evil deed just shows that their motives can't possibly be pure. What, what possible good could come out of uh, trying to, trying to basically ruin the reputation and disqualify someone who's been faithfully in the same ministry for 52 years has never had a taint of scandal attached to his name. And now you have to drum up an artificial scandal. Why? So that some woman can feel like she's, you know, bumped off her next victim. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's irritating. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, it, I'm often accused of being, uh, uh, I think uh, to use this gentleman's name, which I won't name him because I don't want to drive any traffic to him, but uh, the same one that said that Austin Duncan is Ligon Duncan's son. You know, he often calls me a sycophant for, for John MacArthur. And there's a big difference between being a sycophant and, and being appreciative yeah. of a man's ministry who, and Phil, I've, I've told you this before, but I've, by God's grace, I've preached all around the world and I have yet to go anywhere where I do not see the impact of the good fruit that is being born from MacArthur's ministry and grace to you and grace community church in general. Yeah. And I, I think most people know that Justin, it's another reason I don't feel compelled to answer every single nasty tweet that people at me with, uh, right. Uh, I, I think, you know, scripture is pretty clear that, y- you know, a teacher by his fruits exactly. and, uh, I, I don't see how anyone can gain, say the actual fruit of John MacArthur's ministry. Uh, right. so, or, or why they would want to even, but right. You, there you have it. And, uh, I would encourage anybody to look at the fruit that's born from John MacArthur's ministry and compare that to the fruit or lack thereof to a lot of his critics. And there's no comparison, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. But um, speaking of scandal, uh, some of these folks that are attacking MacArthur have tried to draw comparisons between uh, the board at Grace to You and the board of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And so speak to that for us. What would you like yeah, to I mean- that's a really unsavory thing to do while Ravi's ministry is in, in the news for uh, apparently a lot of secret sexual sins that have come out. I, I've commented on Ravi before, mainly to say I don't follow his ministry. I didn't, I didn't particularly appreciate his approach to apologetics. I always thought he was too heavy on philosophy and, and not into the word enough in the way he did apologetics. So uh, we never had any kind of partnership with him. As far as I know, John MacArthur never endorsed any of his books or anything about him. There was no hostility there, but we just didn't intersect because 
we, our, our philosophies of ministry really pointed in different directions. But as these charges against him come out, and, and, and it seems like they are more than charges, that there's ample evidence there, at least to, yeah. to say he's not above reproach. And in an area that uh, uh, involves, you know, the sexual abuse of women and all of that, to, to try to draw some tenuous connection between that and John MacArthur because of the fact that one of John's sons is on our board. Again, right. that's, that's somebody reaching for a scandal that frankly isn't there. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that really people ought to be ashamed to even pay any heed to the facts of our board are there is one family member on the grace to you board, uh, John's eldest son and, and John himself. Uh, and we want to keep it that way for the simple fact that John at age 80 is probably not going to be here in 30 years. And so we want the future of grace to you, which is uniquely the ministry of John MacArthur. It's we exist in our purpose statement. It even says this exists to expand the scope of John MacArthur's teaching ministry through various means of mass media. And uh, John's teaching because of how it is, he doesn't exegete pop culture or, or make references to current news events, things like that. He just opens the word and teaches. And because of that, his ministry is timeless in the sense that you can listen to a John MacArthur tape from 1973, and it's just as relevant today as it was then, which means in all likelihood it's going to be just as powerful and just as relevant in another 40 years. So yeah. uh, we expect to continue to broadcast and distribute John MacArthur's teaching long after I'm gone from the scene. And we want to make sure that someone in John's family who has the family's best interests at heart uh, still has a hand in the ministry. I think the worst thing that could happen would be uh, what has happened to other uh, legacy ministries, ministries that were on the radio for 40, 50 years, but when their key figure passed on and they replaced them with somebody else, uh, the new people changed the whole character and thrust of the ministry. And we don't want that to happen with grace to you. So we have, we have made it a point to keep at least one member of John's family on the board at all times. At one point, two of his sons were on the board, Mark and Matt, right now it's Matt. And, um, uh, we intend to keep it that way. We uh, our our board is uh, consists of mostly disinterested parties, meaning not that they're uninterested, but they have no personal interest in any of the finances or whatever at Grace to You. I'm not a disinterested person because I'm an employee. Matt's not right. a in- disinterested person because he's related to John. But the rest of our board members are um, businessmen and church leaders from elsewhere who have no vested interest in grace to you. And and they make the financial decisions that govern things like my salary. I have a son who works here and they even set his salary. I don't have a voice in that. Uh, The same thing is true with anyone who's related to John. So we follow all of those guidelines that are set up by the ECFA uh, and we follow them faithfully all the way down. Um, So, uh, we're as accountable as we can reasonably be. I'm not going to send out a list of all of our employees' salaries. Uh, um, so, but other than that, our financial reports are available to any donor who asks for them. I'm not going to put them on Twitter, and I'm not going to give them to an investigative reporter. But if, uh, if a person is a 
a le- has a legitimate interest in uh, seeing the financial reports of Grace to you. They can write to us and we'll send it to them. But I should say also, I, I think common sense ought to tell people that that is the appropriate way to ask these sorts of questions. If you have even a, even a nagging concern, maybe it's really even none of your business, but okay, you, you're, you wonder or you're thinking of donating to a ministry and you want to find out the character of the ministry. The proper way to ask that question is to write to them for their information. Right. And see what they send you. And if it's, if it's trustworthy and reliable, questions answered, uh, stirring up a, a controversy with innuendo and, and suppositions on Twitter or in a so-called investigative news article that, that's making speculations about people's salaries and things like that, that's just totally inappropriate. And, yeah. and, you know, the reason I refuse to respond to it is I don't think it deserves the sort of respect that would get a response. Right. Indeed. I was really glad you said that about uh, John's oldest son on the board and his, his role there. I think that's very, very helpful and, and makes perfect sense. And so just in listening to you, uh, this is really a, a Proverbs eighteen seventeen kind of a thing. The, the yeah. Let, let me say one other thing about that too, because sure. if you look at the list of our officers, he's the treasurer and has been for a while. There's a simple reason for that. And it has to do with geography. He's the one who's close by, who can sign checks and do things like that when it needs to be done. And so he serves as a treasurer, which would be um, uh, a logistical nightmare if one of our board members from, say, Atlanta was our treasurer. Getting things signed in a timely right. way would be a pretty difficult thing. So, But nothing is done secretly. Uh, uh, nothing, nothing people in the office do is uh, hidden from the board. And nothing the board does that needs to be made public is secret even from our donors. So, Yeah. And the same kind of dynamic is at work with Corey Welch, because I know that was another point in the article. Corey yeah, is yeah. John's son-in-law. Yeah. That's right. I should address that, too, because that comes up a lot. He, right. uh, he has a video production company located not far from here. I've never actually been to his office. So... Uh, I don't know exactly how far away he is, but he's in the neighborhood here. And of course, he's John's son-in-law. And so he was one of the people who bid. We took bids on, and we we review these on a semi-regular basis, not every year, but frequently. We'll review the costs and take bids for the video work that we do. Uh, television is a sort of recent addition to our ministry. We decided to go on television because NRB TV, uh, started a channel on direct TV and offered us time mm-hmm. at no cost. And it was really? uh, uh Duncan's brother actually who worked for Ligonier at the time uh, who came out to meet with me and said, you, you need to be on television. Grace to you needs to be on television. I said, you know, we don't even videotape John. And he was like, shame on you, you know? And I, I know what he meant because it has always irritated me that nobody thought to ever, to uh, record Charles Spurgeon's voice. We don't have a single recording of what Spurgeon sounded like because nobody thought to do it. Although the technology existed, there are tapes of, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a famous recording of D.L. Moody reading the Beatitudes. It's fascinating to listen to. It's mm-hmm. full of static and stuff like that. But nobody did that with Spurgeon. And what a loss to oh. history. And, and I thought, you know, people are going to be cursing me in perpetuity if we don't get as much 
of John on video as possible. So about a decade ago, I don't remember the exact year, but it's been probably more than a decade, maybe as much as 15 years ago, we started videotaping every time John spoke at Grace Church. And uh, at first we tried to do it in-house. We bought uh, equipment and Corey was the one we hired at the time. He was a salaried employee on our staff to do video. After a year or two, we we decided, no, we're going to bid the uh, contract out and use an outside company. And Corey had started a video production doing it on the side. So he said, can I bid for the contract as well? And we said, of course. So he did. And his bid was competitive. And the added value, I mean, he does great work. And the video quality of things we produce, you can see for yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the great advantage to using Corey is he can get John to, to videotape special things uh, at a drop of a hat. Whereas John, you know, is going to say no if some Hollywood producer calls him up and say, I need you to come down here and s- sit for a three-hour video thing. Video right. is very frustrating to do. As you know, you have to, a lot of setup and lighting and right. stuff like that. And uh, uh, it's a, it can be a waste of time. But if Corey calls John and says, yeah, we need this special video, because he's a son-in-law, he has a lot more pull with John even than I would getting him to do a lot of it. So it's much more convenient. The quality is good and so on. So we pay Corey's company to do it. Now he has a lot of overhead with equipment and personnel. He doesn't videotape and edit everything himself. He has a staff to pay. Right. So the, the amount of the contract does sound exorbitant. If you think that's a salary that we pay directly to Corey, but it isn't, it's a, it's a fee paid to his company. And then he has to support his overhead. And we, we review that frequently. We've, we've done analyses over the years. It's cheaper for us to contract that out to a company than it would be to try to maintain our own staff and video equipment in house. Uh, He can do work on the side, which evens out the cost of his, overhead whereas all we're going to do is john MacArthur, and it, it makes everything we do if we do it in-house that much more expensive so that's the reason for all of that all of that is a matter of public record the board approves that contract john MacArthur himself is not involved in the setting of the price or the even the approval of whose contract we take yeah. so when when we bid it out you know we could conceivably uh, choose another company but i don't foresee us doing that because what we're doing right now is economical and it works well. So that's why we do what we do. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of intrinsic value just in having that real close relationship between Corey and John and, and convenience and all of that. So it's right. And yeah. an aside to that, Corey, uh, he's a very blessed man. He married uh, the most creative member of the MacArthur family and his okay. wife does a lot of the artwork for us as well. Oh, so, okay. Um, so it's all, yeah, it's all in the family and it's all in house, but we get a good product. And if, if yeah. anybody wants to uh, complain about it, then point out what's wrong with the product point, you know, right. try to prove that we're not getting our money's worth. Uh, and right. I dare you to do that. And it's, it's just not the fact. Uh, so to try to make that into something un, unsavory is it, to my view, just reflects a motive that is totally evil and probably rooted in bitterness. And particularly when it comes from someone who has a very long record of trying to discredit John MacArthur's reputation. Yeah. 
Right. I don't feel we owe a person like that uh, answers. No, hard to blame you. Hard to blame you on that. Just a minute ago, Phil, you mentioned briefly the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability. Accountability. That's the ECFA, and that's something with which I'm familiar because it's um, it's a it's an organization that uh, bears some uh, provides some accountability for evangelical ministries of various stripes. And rather famously, back in 2008, 2009, there were some investigations, congressional investigations into some of these more prominent prosperity preachers like Paula White and Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar, undoubtedly right. the most aptly named of the prosperity preachers, Creflo Dollar. But um, famously, they are not members of the ECFA, and, and much was made in uh, Miss Roy's article about how Grace to You has withdrawn from the ECFA as well. And so prosperity preachers aren't a part of it. Grace to You is not a part of it. So there's got to be some a common thread there, right? Yeah, actually, that's wrong. Grace to You is a member of ECFA. It was the church that withdrew their membership. Oh, the church. Excuse uh, me. Okay. We, are, we are separate organizations. I, I, I felt like the article that she wrote deliberately tried to blur the distinctions between the organizations involved. We're not the same as the master's university and seminary. We're totally different organization. Right. And the church is a totally different organization as well. Grace to you wasn't always separate from the church, but in the mid 1980s, we spun off and became a separate organization that confused her in that article as well, too, because I had made the comment that for the first 30 years of this ministry, John MacArthur got paid nothing. And she wanted to dispute the, uh, actually she, accused me of not telling the truth because she found the year we incorporated as a separate organization. And she wants to count that as the beginning of our ministry. But actually the ministry began the first year John was at Grace Community Church, 1969, uh, when volunteers began uh, making copies and distributing John's tapes. And, uh, and they, they, elders decided to sell the tapes so that they weren't losing money on the proposition. They sold the tapes uh, I wasn't here at the time, so I'm, I'm operating from memory. But I think it was about a dollar a cassette. Actually, I think at first they set the price higher and realized they were making money. And so they dropped it to a dollar. And when I came to Grace to You in uh, 1983, mm-hmm. uh, the price of tapes was about a dollar, uh, one dollar per cassette. And uh, in the in, in the original decision to charge for those tapes when the ministry was part of the church some of the elders wanted to pay john a royalty for the tapes that they sold 10 cents a tape or something like that and that's that's the amount i've heard 10 cents a tape which sounds like not much but when you're selling you know 10 million tapes that's a million dollars yeah. Uh, that he he for he he decided to forego right away. He said, "I don't need money for my tapes. Y'all pay me a salary. I don't want it. You just distribute the tapes and keep them as cheap as possible." And they did that. Uh, yeah. And he didn't get any money from the sale of his tapes or the work of Grace to You either when we were a division of the church or when we became a separate organization. Um, and uh, uh, that went on for thirty years, uh, huh. millions of tapes. And uh, he, he, he used to laughingly make the comment that maybe he should revisit that, <laughs> that decision, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, and he could have, he, but never did. Yeah, no. Nah, and uh, he, I mean, that, his goal is to, to get the sermons out there. And uh, right. 
nothing ever made him happier than when we, the staff here at Grace to You, without without his consent, actually, made the decision to uh, to make when we'd gone to MP3s and people could download them over the internet uh, in in nineteen. Wait a minute, no, in two thousand eight, it was mm-hmm. it was the year of Obama's first election. I remember because it was the day after election day when Obama was uh, chosen as the president. Uh, that's when we said, look, we're going to stop charging for MP3 downloads. You can download any of these, as many of them as you want for free. Hmm. Nothing we ever did made John happier than that. And uh, now now we distribute, you know, millions every month. If he was still getting a dime off every download, you know, he would be, uh, he would, he would have more money than either you or I could figure out what to do with, but whatever. Um, so anyway, he had gone for years w- without being paid at all uh, for grace to you. And uh, the church paid him a salary. There, there's a famous story about when um, John had been here about a decade, the elders decided to raise his salary as pastor. And he said, I don't need a raise. I don't, I don't want to raise. Forget it. Spend it on missions or whatever. The elders consulted amongst themselves and said, no, the workman is worthy of his hire. And we don't think you're paid enough. If you don't want this money, fine, we're going to give it to you anyway, and then we'll watch what you do with it. We want to see what you do with it. Let's see what your stewardship is like. You, you can give it to missions if you want. And that's pretty much what's happened over the years. John is, and, and here's where it becomes very difficult, because I can't give you details that I know about John's giving. I don't want to rob him of his heavenly reward he, sure. he's not going to blow a trumpet before him when he gives but right. he is as many people have already said in response to that hit piece that was published uh yeah. john is the most generous man of his stature that i've ever met or known or encountered and uh it, it's true that he gets multiple salaries because he's involved with the church and grace to you and sure until recently, the university, I don't, I don't know if they still pay him a salary or not over there. I just don't know. They might. Uh, but I, and the only one I know because I work here is grace to you, but I also happen to know what he does with that. Yeah. And uh, it, that does not, that does not line his personal pockets. That's really all right. I want to say about it. But yeah. uh, he uses that for the Lord's work. And, um, you know, it, it, I, as I've said repeatedly, and in fact, I, I had a document where I had answered many of the questions that were sent to us that was available to the reporter who wrote the hit piece. And she selectively quoted what helped her narrative and ignored the facts that didn't. And uh, right. one of the facts that absolutely doesn't help that narrative that I've made over and over again, that you don't evaluate a person's um, stewardship based on how much money they make, what size their salary is, you evaluate whether they're a lover of money or not by looking at their lifestyle. And uh, I dare anybody to look at John MacArthur's lifestyle and accuse him of extravagant living. Yeah. He, uh, he's just not an extravagant man, but he's an extremely generous man. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's really all anybody needs to know. If somebody had actual facts that proved otherwise, mm-hmm go ahead and publish it. But there are no facts like that. Right, right. Uh, 
I, you know, I've, I've been around John some, and I've, I've had a couple of opportunities to see his humility and some very unscripted things and things that have really impressed me that I've shared with you before. Uh, but I don't know him all that well, not nearly as well as, as do you and others there. But I, I know people who know him well, and um, everyone who knows him well has said exactly what you just did, that uh, he is a very, very generous man with what God right. has given him. And let me also follow up on that, because the gist of, of that article and some of the subsequent discussion is, well, the proof that he's a lover of money is in the fact that he has three houses and, and collectively they're worth millions, people keep saying. I, I don't actually know uh, the value of all, of all three of his houses, but he, here's the story. His house where he lives uh-huh. uh, is at the other end of this valley. He has lived in that house for 40 years. A man who's a lover of money and who makes millions, as John has on book royalties, doesn't live in the same house for 40 years. He builds a bigger one or whatever. Right. Uh, John has lived in the exact same house for 40 years. That's on a piece of property that, I, as I understand it, was given to him because when he lived down in the San Fernando Valley, the, the most populated part of the northern half of Los Angeles County, um, because of his profile as pastor of Grace Church, there was a stalker who was threatening one of his children, one of his daughters. And so someone gave him this property in a remote area. There were no other houses around at the time. And he built that house. I don't know how much it cost, but given the fact that it was built in the late 1970s and uh, uh, on property that was donated to him, I'd be very surprised if he spent much more than 100000 on it. So the real estate listings say it's worth a million and a half right now. I call that a good investment. It's certainly not a, it wasn't an extravagant expense on his part, but what's he supposed to do? Look at the value of his house and say, no, I I better move into a smaller cottage. Yeah. Uh, You know, he's living in the same place for 40 years. That says something. Yeah. He's preached at the same church for 52 years. This is not a man who's shopping around for uh, a more extravagant lifestyle. Yeah. The other, the second house that I know that's not far from here is a sort of getaway that John goes to when he needs to be alone to, to study, when he needs to get away from the phone and the office and the, those of us who constantly are asking him to videotape and stuff like that uh, for writing projects and stuff like that. He's, it's, I would guess, 50 miles from the Grace to You office mm-hmm. towards Ventura, another, that's the next, the next sizable town north of LA. Uh, and that's the one that this article says it's only 11 miles from the beach. You know, I can show you homeless people that live closer to the beach than that. That's, that's, that's not a short walk to the beach, you know, right. and it, yeah. it could easily say it's a half mile from a strip mall in a Seven Eleven. It It's, right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> this is not a mansion. It's a, in fact, I think the real estate listings on it, and again, I'm going from memory, so, so, but it's something like three bedrooms and two bathrooms. This is not, this is not a luxury home. Right. Uh, in fact, I think it's a condominium, but I am not even sure about that. The yeah. third one is a, 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 basically a cabin in the woods. It's a, it's an ice cabin. It's a, it's got several bedrooms because John built it so that his entire family can use it as a vacation getaway on some property that, again, was given to him, given two to acres mm-hmm. in uh, Colorado. And uh, I've not been there. I haven't seen it. I don't know. I'm told that the picture that was published with the hit piece 
is not a picture of the actual place. That's not the right. Oh, really? the, the house that's shown in that picture is not John's cabin. They keep referring to it as his ranch because I think the ownership of it is uh, something like Circle M Ranch or some something like that that signifies MacArthur family. And my understanding is that it's jointly owned or, or uh, set up so that the ownership of it will pass to jointly to his four children. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's part of his inheritance to his children. It's not, again, not a, a luxury place. It's a, it's a once a year getaway. And that's where John goes in the summer when he needs to get out of the state yeah. and away from, again, those of us who demand his time. He usually spends, I don't know, five to six weeks during the summer uh, there mm-hmm. where he catches right. up on his reading and, and, um, it tries to relax and spend time with his wife. It's not an unreasonable expense, and it, it certainly isn't an extravagant thing. I don't know what he makes on book royalties. It's yeah. not as much as he's worth, certainly. That's I wouldn't sure. take that money in exchange for him. Uh, no and he doesn't use it to to spend lavishly on himself, but if he, he wants to have a place uh, to be able to get away, get out of state with his whole family, with a bedroom enough for everybody in the family, then I don't begrudge him that. And I don't think it's an extravagance. Yeah. And to try to make it sound like he's, you know, shopping around for bigger mansions all the time is to totally misrepresent John MacArthur. It's been completely unfair to him. And those who follow his teaching, I think generally know, this is another reason that I haven't felt obliged to answer every question that's thrown at me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, because I think people who, uh, who listen to John teach and have listened for years in many cases, that they know how deeply he gets into scripture. They know that this is not a man who's spending his spare time only on leisure or uh, living an extravagant lifestyle because he's in it for himself. Uh, right. That's as far from John MacArthur as anything I know. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, thank you for that, Phil. That's, that's really helpful. Um, that, that sheds a lot of light. And it, it's, again, Proverbs eighteen seventeen. the first to plead his case seems right. I mean, the way this, all of this has been presented, boy, it makes it makes a really compelling argument. The first to plead his I case know. seems right. You know, until I, someone... I said, I don't answer the tweets, but I do read some of them. And the one that no. st- stuck out at me as the, the, the most hypocritical, was a guy who, I, I don't know, and I've never interacted with him on Twitter, but his his little picture is a picture of his own uh, recreational boat. It's a very expensive Chris Craft. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he in his profile, it says something about his boating hobby and all of that. And he's, he's scolding John MacArthur for his extravagance. And I'm thinking, you know, as far as I know, John doesn't own... I think the only recreational vehicle he has is a push mower. <laughs> and this guy, this guy with an expensive wooden boat is scolding John for his lavish lifestyle. It's just so wow. full of hypocrisy. Not only that, the woman who, who, uh, who wrote the hit piece, uh, if you, if you do the math on her house, look it up on the real estate figures. It, it is public knowledge. Uh-huh. Uh, her, her house is, is within a hundred square feet at the same size as John, same numbers, same number of bedrooms and bathrooms as John's house. So I don't, I don't really know what the burr under her saddle is about, but 
Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of, of that with her house being within a hundred square feet and public knowledge, did, did you dox her? I, dox is not even a term I even knew the meaning of until about a year ago, but did, what's the skinny on that? Yeah, apparently I did. I mean, and I'm sorry for that clumsiness or whatever, but uh, I, it's a kind of a long story. She had written me, uh, she had actually written someone in our ministry, a list of questions about a year ago. And he passed it on to me because he was too busy to do it. And so I began to answer her questions. They were questions about finances and grace to you and stuff like that. I actually have the written sheet that I, I'd written all her answers. And then she sent another sort of accusatory, one of her, one of her hallmarks is she'll send a list of questions and say, I need your answers by, you know, noon tomorrow. Cause I'm going to go to print with this, with this story, uh, which I don't respond well to blackmail. And that's when I wrote back to her and said, look, I, I had prepared an answer to all your questions, but now I've, I've looked you up online. I see that all you've ever written about John MacArthur has been an attempt to discredit him. Uh, and so I'm not going to answer your questions. And furthermore, nobody else from our ministry is ever going to answer any questions you have. Don't bother sending questions like these again. If you're going to write a story, you just go ahead and do it. But if you're a real investigative reporter, you ought to know that some of these facts are available online. And uh, so that was the letter I wrote her. Uh, originally, uh, uh, you know, I had I'd answered her questions. Then I wrote her this other letter, and I decided finally – just going to email it off to her. So I emailed it off to her, but I still have a copy of the letter that I, that was, it, it was verbatim what I sent her in the email. Yeah. So I scanned it, put it online and uh, yeah, it had her address, uh, which but you can find just about anybody's address. Online. Yeah. Well, you know, she'd spent all this time uh, criticizing John and putting pictures of his house and the location. She doxed him as well. So, yeah, right. uh, you know, I figure uh, her address is, public information i it didn't occur to me to take it down but as soon as she complained i mean the minute she complained which was like 10 minutes after i put it up there i think uh i blurred it out so it's yeah. it's blurred uh you can't you can't read her address now but she has not let go of the fact that she was doxxed she's she's gonna milk it for victimhood and uh, that has been the th- even though what i actually posted proved that she had facts that did not support her narrative and she published anyway, she's shoved all that aside to spend the last two weeks complaining that she got doxxed after she had doxxed John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, you you shouldn't dox people, but uh, uh, I've, I'd always considered doxing being uh, the release of private information and stuff. And her, her address is public. You do a search, a Google search for her name, even now and her address comes up on the first page. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So sorry to have created the problem. I'm mostly sorry that I gave her an excuse to divert from the actual point, which is that her hit piece wasn't even honest because she didn't deal with all the facts that she had. Yeah. You know, and John MacArthur's house being worth whatever it said, 1.5 million. I'm surprised it's not worth more than that if it was built in the 1970s. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, honestly. And in the neighborhood it's in, it, which used to be a remote area, but now there are, uh, there are some, uh, some very impressive mansions out there. Uh, the neighborhood alone probably raises the, the property value. But um, 
Yeah, I was I was surprised as well. I would have guessed that it's worth more than that. Yeah. You know, she went after me for my house as well, uh, and or for my salary. And she's complaining that, uh, you know, that I'm I'm making a killing off whatever. You, you've seen my lifestyle, so you know this. Uh, uh, I don't know that you've ever been to my house, but my house is 1,900 square feet. It is, it is not a mansion. And although, uh, if you look it up, you can find my address on on yeah. Google as well. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty easy to find out where I live. You look it up. It says it's a four-bedroom house. Actually, we have three bedrooms and a loft that could be used as a bedroom if you put a hammock in there. Uh, but our bedrooms are so small that if you have anything other than a twin size bed, you can't get any other foot uh, furniture in the room. So, so this is not luxury living where I'm at. This is California. And I was in California, uh, for, uh, let's see, 20 years before I was even able to put a down payment on a condominium. Wow. And, and so I raised my kids in a, in a 1300 foot condominium. And uh, about the time my eldest graduated from high school, we were able to put a down payment on a house. And that's when we moved to where we're at now. At the time, grace to you, because I'd been there for 20 years and uh, intended to stay another 20, which I have done. Uh, So I've been here nearly 40 years. Uh, When it was obvious, look, this is my career, this is my life, and I live in a tiny condominium, the board graciously said, look, we want to help you get into a a real house. And so they gave me a loan that was forgivable over time. They said, if you really stay the next five years, we will forgive this loan uh, one-fifth at a time over the next five years. And so uh, they keep making a lot of noise of the fact that I got a $50,000 loan from the board and that was forgivable. And, and they did forgive it because I, I stayed all those years. Right. And I'm grateful for that. But I see that as, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for that. It's not the kind of thing I would announce to the public. Uh, but, but since it is public, I just want to say I'm very grateful for that. I see that as a token of the Lord's blessing to me and my family. Yeah. And uh, I, I shame on anybody who would see it any other way. Yeah. And if, if you own a business and you have somebody who's working for you and devoted their life to you and you have the means to help them out like that and you don't do it, then shame on you for that as well. Absolutely. It's, it's not Amen. an extravagance. Amen. Amen to that. Absolutely. Well, Phil, if, if we could, turn corners here just a little bit change direction um yes let's do i'm tired of talking about money (laughs) no kidding no kidding um so uh another controversy that's a couple of years old now but i figured since i I had this opportunity with you um you know back in 2019 much was made of uh this article that came out i don't even remember the name of the person who wrote it but um anyway said that john MacArthur's claim of being with Charles Evers, who was the brother of Medgar Evers, who had been killed, I think, back in 63. But in anyway, 1968, uh, John says that he was with Charles Evers in Jackson, Mississippi, not far from where I'm from. And uh, the, the night that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and then they, they drove up from Jackson to Memphis, which was about a three, three and a half hour drive. And, and within a, 
So within a few hours, John said he was there at the Lorraine Motel and saw even where James Earl Ray shot Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, so anyway, it's a, a story that he's told, and, and some people have tried to discredit that. So is there anything regarding that? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked me about that as well, because uh, I think this doesn't get enough publicity. Uh, that's a story John has been telling for years. That's not something he made up in 2019, and, you know, suddenly that became part of his life's tale. Correct. I've heard that right. going back years. I don't know how public he's been with it, but, but I knew about that for for years he uh, he was ministering at the time with uh, John Perkins who was a black civil rights leader but more than that a, a minister a gospel minister uh, who ministers in the black community um uh and John Perkins was led to Christ by John's father and so John spent a couple of summers i i i don't i don't actually know every fact related to this. I don't know if it was more than one summer, but I know he spent time going through the South, preaching the gospel in black communities with John Perkins. And um, they were, he was there, he was in Mississippi when the Martin Luther King assassination took place. They did drive up to Memphis and stand on the balcony in the, uh, at the Lorraine hotel where, where King was assassinated. The only thing I'm not sure about, and, and, you know, I don't trust my own memory of what happened in 1968. I, I in fact, was yeah. recently, uh, I was in a marching band that did these contests and stuff, and we traveled all around, and uh, I had this vague, or I had this, what I thought was a vivid memory of, uh, of a thing we did in 1968 or 69 in Winnipeg, Canada, and I recently had the means to look up the facts on it from some newspaper archives, and and discovered in reading, rereading the news accounts of that day that uh, I had compressed some things in my mind that weren't right. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's possible we all do that it. John, John has compressed the timeline of those events in his mind, but he absolutely did go with John Perkins and this team to Memphis and stand on the, on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel. He says within hours, I think it might have actually been within 48 hours or 72 hours after the assassination. It was right afterwards. And John describes how the bloodstains were still on the balcony. Uh, and that's a, that's a matter of historical fact. In fact, uh, uh, I, I read one story that, uh, that I, I'm eager to sort of find the facts on this one, but that in order to preserve some of the stuff people in the area had actually cut that piece of concrete with the blood stain out and moved it removed it uh and it's been replaced where it originally was at the Lorraine Hotel and covered up with plexiglass so that you can see the blood stain apparently even till today there's an article online that's titled something like the uh, again this is from memory but it's something like the blood stain that won't go away or something like that now you can read about the facts of that. But anyway, John describes that. He describes how he was in the room where uh, James Earl Ray shot the fatal bullet. Uh, here's how I know John's memory on it isn't, isn't you know, exactly precise in every detail. Because he says he stood on the toilet from where, or, or he, he, he was in the room where the toilet was that James Earl Ray stood on when he shot Martin Luther King. The fact is he was standing in the bathtub. There is a toilet right next to it, but he was, he was standing in the bathroom. There's a little facts like that that I think yeah. John misremembers. But the fact is, he was there, and there are other eyewitnesses who will verify that. One of them is the, 
president of uh, Shasta, I think it's called Shasta Bible College. Okay, so let me, let me read this. This is the president of Shasta Bible College. His name is David Nicholas. He was part of that team that, uh, that John was with when he was, uh, w- when all of that happened. And he's written a fairly um, thorough account of that summer with John Perkins. I, I say fairly thorough. It's a letter. He wrote a, a, a lengthy letter to his constituents uh, and described some of the same uh, events that John described. When I saw this letter, I took it to John and said, do you remember this guy? And John goes, oh, yeah, I remember. We went to college together. Uh, so any mentions that he was there, John was there, they went to the assassination site and all that. So he tells the same story John does is yeah. confirming eyewitness testimony, which I have sent to some of these people who are insistent on, uh, you know, calling John a liar and all of that. There's this Brett Detweiler guy who puts stuff out all yes. the time. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they simply ignore any testimony that would corroborate John MacArthur's account and cite the testimony of people who say they don't remember John being there, as if somehow that's proof that John MacArthur's lying about this. Right. Uh, it's not a lie. Uh, he, may have, he may have some incidental details wrong, but yeah. I think we all have fuzzy, uh, the, the details of our memories from 50 years ago are, yeah. tend to be a little bit fuzzy. Yeah. That's more than 50 years ago, isn't it? That's it's 53 50, now. 53 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, before I was even born. I mean, so that's a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember that. I remember the event and uh, I remember that week what I was doing. But, uh, you know, how 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 detailed I could be with regard to the specifics is pretty questionable. Yeah. And and it's perfectly understandable. Yeah. So if you wanted to if you wanted to pick apart John's story and say, no, it, this couldn't have been hours later. Well, it depends on what you count by hours. If it was 72 hours later, it actually, yeah, it's credible. Right. And in fact, there are photographs of the balcony of the Lorraine hotel uh, within days after the assassination loaded with people looking and seeing yeah. and wanting to visit the event, putting up plaques and flowers and stuff like that. Yeah. I've got a ton of those pictures. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I find it so ironic that, that some of these folks that are so uh, going after some of them, not all, but some of them are, are to varying degrees influenced by the social justice movement. And, and they're, they're far more concerned about the minutia of the details of, of John's account that night uh, with that event than they are with the fact that he was in the deep South in the 1960s purposefully preaching the gospel to black people. I mean that. Like, I'd say that's a, a a tad more significant than uh, the minutia of the of the details of, of what happened that night. Yeah, I agree. He was arrested for it, right? Well, yeah, arrested. Uh, it, in fact, this letter. I'll I'll put the letter from this president of uh, Shasta Bible College online, uh, okay. so that you can link to it, and your okay. people can read it. Uh, because he talks about the fact that they were stopped by this sheriff in Mendenhall, Mississippi, who arrested them, and, and John was apparently driving the car. These are details John doesn't tell in his version of it, that uh, he was driving the car. That's why he uh, was the one arrested. 
okay. and but the sheriff the the sheriff's beef was the fact that there's these white guys running around with you know black civil rights leaders preaching in churches and stuff like that and uh, it wasn't that John broke any traffic laws, but he happened to be driving without his wallet. Uh, so he didn't have his driver's license on him, apparently. And so uh, they threw him in the clink for the night. And uh, John says that he did have money in his pocket and the sheriff just kept all that. Like, That'll be your fine. I'll just, right. I'll just take whatever you got. Yeah. So, it sounds like one of those old movies, you know, in the right. heat of the night. And uh, you could see this guy sort of thumping his hand with a, with a nightstick and threatening uh-huh. John. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting That's- story. I, I wrote about it maybe 15 years ago on my blog. Uh, Cause John had told this story and Ligon Duncan picked it up somewhere and repeated it. And uh, uh, so I wrote about it and the headline on my blog, I just put John MacArthur arrested in Mississippi. And apparently <laughs> that headline gave everybody heart attacks. <laughs> <Clickbait>. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, turning yet another corner for another, and this is a much older uh, controversy, but I feel I get I get emails pretty regularly, and I see comments from people. John MacArthur teaches that you can take the mark of the beast and still be saved, and that you know that is definitive proof that he is a heretic and leading millions of people down the primrose primrose path to hell. So, since we have you here, uh, walk us <laughs> through that. I'm becoming very experienced at answering this question because it comes a, up a lot. Not to interrupt you, I have a document actually that I've made with your article and Fred Butler's article, and I've put that in a document. Whenever, anytime I get an email like that, I just attach that document and send it off. Like, here you go, read this. Fred, Fred probably has a better answer even than mine, more thorough and stuff. But basically, here's the story. Years ago, years ago, I think this was in the 1970s. It was a long time ago in a Q&A. Someone asked John, if, if someone during the Great Tribulation takes the mark of the beast and then later repents of it, is that a forgivable sin? And John said, yeah, because Jesus says in Matthew 12, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's, he's actually pointing at some Pharisees who had just accused him of doing miracles in the power of, of the devil. Uh, that was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if all other sins and blasphemies are forgivable, then, yeah, if you repent after having taken the, if you genuinely repent after having, you know, somebody who takes the mark in ignorance and then repents, theoretically could be forgiven. It's a hypothetical that, you know, frankly, right. if I were John, and probably John in his in his older years would would say, it's a hypothetical. I don't know. I'm not going to answer. But, yeah. you know, based on what Jesus said, that all manner of sin and blasphemy is forgivable, the answer is, yeah, if you genuinely repent of that, it's not an unpardonable sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will repent, because it does seem to me that there's a, a deliberate act of renouncing God and worshiping the beast involved in take but i don't know i don't even know what the mark of the beast is a lot of people today assume that it's an rfid chip that's going to be injected into you through a a covid19 uh inoculation right i mean that is that is probably the dominant view today and i actually have a a uh an email from a woman who wrote and said i heard john MacArthur say go ahead and take the rfid chip you're going to be okay (laughs) 
I heard him say that. She heard and it. Yep. Insisted that that's what John said. Go ahead and take the RFID chip. Uh, so that's how ridiculous this gets. Uh, uh, so for the record, I just want to say, John MacArthur does not think you should take the mark of the beast. Right. If you wake up someday and find out it's on you, repent. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And you, as you said, it's a hypothetical. It was a, a question that he responded to in a Q&A nearly 40 years ago or whatever. And, and people want to brand him as a, as a heretic for that. Yeah, they want to make it like he's teaching this doctrine. Uh, yeah, right. I think, he's, I think he's addressed that question maybe twice in his whole ministry. Once when the person first asked it. And a second time when I asked him, is that really what you said? And what's the context? And he explained it to me. Other than that, I doubt that it's ever crossed his mind more than three times. Yeah, yeah. And those three times would be because somebody wrote and asked him about it. You know, it's certainly not something he teaches. uh, Like, I mean, the impression some of his adversaries want to give is that he's going out there saying, no, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. It's going to be okay. That's ridiculous. Yeah, he's probably practically got it on a bumper sticker on his car. Take the mark. <laughs> right. And, and you know, that's that was the answer he gave in, in, a, in a Q&A. If you want to really know the heart of what John MacArthur says about the end times and the mark of the beast and how, how we ought to respond to or recognize the Antichrist, Listen to where he exegetes those passages, and he's not yeah. saying or doing anything that would right. encourage anyone to take the mark of the beast. Yeah, go to his commentary, see what he says about it. I mean, absolutely. Well, Phil, thank you, brother, and thank you for your time. This has been really helpful. Uh, I've learned some stuff, so uh, thank you very, very much, and I uh, appreciate you, appreciate your friendship and your ministry. So, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm enough of a cynic myself to know that when this gets out there, uh, it's just going to stir up those cockroaches that love to come with negative stuff and at me on Twitter. So this may cost me my Twitter account. I may have to get rid of it just so I don't have to have to deal all that, with all that stuff. But thank yeah. you for asking those questions in a, uh, with an intent of actually wanting to hear answers rather than absolutely. looking for things you can nitpick. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. Well, I appreciate you too, brother. Sure do. And, and uh, I, I know you can't go into any depth here but uh is it the expectation as as far as as far as you guys know out there that shepherds conference will be rescheduled at, rescheduled at some point later this year is that the hope yeah all i can say is i i that is that is the hope of the people who make that decision i'm not part of that uh, people again often don't really understand the grasp of the yeah. fact that grace church is a separate organization separate. from grace to you the conference is Grace Church's conference. It's not ours. I'm not involved in either the planning or discussions of any of this stuff. Uh, but the, the inklings I've gotten from the Shepherds Conference team is that they are right now, as you and I speak, uh, it's what, Tuesday, uh, right after President's Day. Uh, they've spent most of the day looking for uh, uh, a time where they can reschedule and working out the logistics of what that will entail. It's difficult because in the evangelical world, there's, you know, a lot of big conferences and they do try not to intrude on one another's territory. We wouldn't yeah. purposely schedule uh, a redo of the shepherds conference uh, in a way that would be a threat to G3 or, you know, Ligonier or, or whatever. And when you take, 
the year and squeeze it down into just six months, it's kind of hard to schedule all of those conferences. So whether they're going to be able to reschedule it or not, I don't know. I'm I'm a little skeptical personally, but I don't have any insider knowledge other than to tell you, yes, they, they definitely want this to be a postponement and not a cancellation. Yeah. Uh, and I think there will be news about when and whether they can reschedule it this year, uh, probably before you even get this podcast posted. Oh. So your question may be answered by someone other than me by the time you put right. this up. But I honestly don't know any more than you do about the timing and logistics of it, other okay. than the fact that they definitely want to reschedule. Sure. In the yeah. meantime, I think they are offering refunds to everybody who registered. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's another question that people keep asking. They're going to refund all those registrations. And the answer is yes, obviously. Yeah. Uh, or if they can reschedule, uh, they'll probably give you the option to, uh, to just let it ride over to, and, and you'll be pre-registered for the right. conference, whenever it is. Right. But I, again, I'm speaking as an outsider. I'm not speaking with the authority sure. of Shepherd's Conference itself. Sure. And, and speaking of the conference, you know, I've been to several of those, and uh, they, they always give away tons of books, tons of books. And, and Grace to You gives away a lot of its resources as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, that's something else we should have talked about with, uh, with regard to whether John MacArthur is a greedmonger or a... Or a a gracious person. Yeah. I just look at the record of Grace to You. If you've been on Grace to You's mailing list for the past twenty years, mm-hmm. you probably haven't had to purchase any new books by John MacArthur because when he comes out with a new book, mm-hmm. we generally buy a quantity of those and give them away. And John MacArthur waives his royalty from the publisher on any books we do that with. That's one of the ECFA requirements. You can't make money personally off fundraising efforts you know, that your organization does. So we couldn't, if we use a book uh, with John to, uh, to attract interest of our, our donors or to say thank you to them for their support or, or uh, whatever message you want to attach to it, if we are giving away a book to donors, uh, he cannot make any, any royalties on that. So we give away, you know, 30,000 copies of a book. Uh, I don't think you can assume he would have sold 30,000 copies of, but they're, a lot of those are, are given to people who otherwise would buy the book and he simply waves his royalties on it. And he's never complained about that or, I mean, he wants to do it. So um, that just, that's become such a part of our ministry that we give everything away that we can. We love doing that and we have no, no intention to stop. And the day uh, this month, this ministry actually gets more interested in, money than we are in ministry, I'm out of here. Hmm. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Well, Phil, before I let you go, one other question. Uh, with all that the church has been through with all the, you know, the publicity and the litigation and the uh, opposition that you've had from the city and county and state government, how's John doing? How's he holding up through all of this? Seems pretty good to me. I mean, he's, he's, I think, 15 years older than I am. He's in his 80s. I'm 67. Uh, he's about 14 or 15 years older than me. And uh, he seems like he's 15 or 16 years younger than me. Huh. He certainly has more energy than I do. And uh, it's hard to keep up with him. 
and I don't think he's been one bit discouraged by uh, any of the any of the uh, pressure that he's received because of his response to the quarantine and restrictions on churches and all that. If anything, it's energized him, and um, you can see that. Yeah, you can see that in the effects of the church. Grace Church hasn't slowed down at all in the midst of uh, COVID. We've had to change our schedule, and we only have one morning service instead of two, mm. but um, it's still a thriving uh, hive of ministry. And another interesting thing about that, speaking of money and offerings and all that, we have not actually taken up a collection since the quarantine began there nobody's passed the plate or we actually have these bags that get passed instead of plates because if you drop right. it it's not as noisy you know so oh, that's uh, why you have the bags okay that makes sense yeah you've seen those huh yeah so uh, they uh those bags have not been passed for almost a year now and yet uh the people of grace church have continued to support the ministry at levels that that are actually above what you would ever expect above what we budgeted for. So financially uh, the, the COVID stuff hasn't really been a, uh, a threat to, to our existence, what we feel threatened by. And of course we, we trust the Lord for his, that his power exceeds that of anyone who would try to stop us. But what, what is threatening from a human point of view is the increased government pressure that you feel uh, they want to they want to limit what the church can do and tell you how you can meet when you can meet whether you can sing all those sorts of things right. and when that started I think all of us said we can put up with this for two weeks or a month if it at the worst but a year later I, I would think most Christians would be saying well wait a minute I mean how is this an imminent threat to life and limb when right now I don't know anybody who is seriously ill with the virus. I don't know anybody who's tested positive for the virus for several weeks. Mm. Uh, and yet uh, we are still hampered and we can't even have the shepherd's conference. So yeah. uh, that, that feels like a, a kind of government encroachment. And um, our prayer of course, is that the, the gospel will have, uh, full reign anyway, and that regardless of what restrictions the government might impose on us, it's not going to silence the the word or the ministry of the gospel. And Jesus himself said, even the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. So as his kingdom continues to be built uh, in an ironic way, it seems like the COVID crisis has actually furthered that, and yeah. we're grateful for that. Yeah. I know there've been a lot of people that I've, I've talked to pastors all over the country and there's a lot of people who are looking for churches that have not shut down and uh, they're looking for churches to take a stand and preach the truth. And uh, a lot of churches have grown because of that. This COVID's brought a lot of new faces into a lot of different churches. I'm at one right now, as a matter of fact. So, Yeah, no, you get that. There's so many churches shut down around us that we have had a massive influx of new people that we're yeah. meeting who are saying, I'm coming here because our church, not only are they not meeting, they're not really, there's, there's really no light at the end of their tunnel. They're going to stay closed in perpetuity. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. All there right. are there, as you know, you know, this as well as I, there are some churches 
uh, across the country that I'd be happy to see closed. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I know a lot of the ones that are shut down, you're thinking, man, that's great. They, they yeah, need this shit. That's down. right. Well, I saw you. I saw I watched your entire, what was it, a four hour video on all the failed prophecies? Did you and, went through that uh, whole thing? Wow. I went through it start to finish. I came home from work one day, put it on, and stayed with it until you finally shut it down. And, <laughs> and uh, really? I just thought, yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually very encouraging to see that kind of uh, hypocrisy and shenanigans exposed so clearly. I don't know how people like that can make a comeback from their own failed prophecies, but they always seem to somehow. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's a lot of gullible people out there, but every time there's a wave of something like this, it helps. It You know, after Strange Fire Conference, when has that been now? Almost five years ago. Oh, no, that was 2013. So it's been eight years ago. Really? No. Uh, yeah, October 1st. Time flies. Yeah. But to this day, you probably have the same experience I do, that to this day, everywhere I go, I just spoke at a conference mm-hmm. down in San Bernardino this week and met at least six different people who told me, I used to be a charismatic, but Strange Fire helped me see, the conference helped yep. me see the the fa- uh, the fallacy of that and uh, and I left the movement I see that everywhere and and you know thankfully people who leave the movement because of strange fire yeah. seem to find their way into churches where the gospel is taught the bible's believed and, uh, and then they begin to thrive spiritually and it's yeah. like they see that as another life the old life the the old charismatic superstition absolutely so maybe we'll have another wave of that yeah yeah, Lord willing, I hope so. I, I can honestly tell you that since the Strange Fire Conference, I have never preached at a single location anywhere in the world where I have not had people come up to me and tell me how much they were impacted by that conference. Yeah, it is It is amazing, isn't it? Striking. It is. I, I was saying that for two, two years or so. I, you and I spoke at a couple of subsequent conferences. I probably told you that everywhere I go, literally everywhere I go, and to this day, that has not slacked off. I, yeah. I cannot think of a conference I've spoken at anywhere since Strange Fire where I haven't run into somebody who says, you know, I found you and I found this church because of yeah. Strange Fire. We were locked away in the charismatic movement until then. So yeah. I know that's still bearing fruit. And, uh, uh, you know, if anybody's watching this who hasn't seen the Strange Fire messages, <laughs> do a Google search and find them. And especially watch Justin's stuff. It's great. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but uh, it was an honor to be a part of it. And um, any, is there any discussion at all of a, of a strange fire too? I heard someone say that you need to call it Holy Smokes or something. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> there's well, that, that was I my mean, proposal. That was my proposal. Holy oh, smokes. is that yours? Okay. Uh, yeah. But um, yes, people ask about that all the time as well. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a question of finding time. With the, with the Shepherds Conference being postponed, and there was supposed to be a conference on Puritan, Puritanism with Joel Beakey yeah, right. that also got uh, shifted to next year, I think. And so right now here at Grace to You, Grace to You was a sponsor of Strange Fire. It's like the Shepherds Conference, but different organization puts it on and all that. Right. And uh, so we're looking for an opportunity to do the next conference uh, from Grace to You. And... Um, uh, it looks to me like that's not going to be any sooner than 2023. So that's still two years away. Yeah. Uh, if you can hold out that long. Well, it'll be a 10-year uh, anniversary. 
So that's right. It will. It will be ten years. We have to do it then. I I hear that, uh, and in fact, I've got the pastor of this church is sitting right next to me. He's going, yeah. He's. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hear that all the time. People are always asking me, "Is there going to be another strange fire? Is there going to be a strange fire too?" People are con- a- asking me that constantly. So, I, well, um, there's been a well, lot of developments in the last eight years, and um, you know, two years from now, there will be even more. Yeah. Well, you covered it in that four-hour video, so. Uh, <laughs> That 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 should salve people until 2023, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd love to see it happen. I would. Even if I'm Thanks, not speaking at it, I would be there with bells on just to attend it. So. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate you, brother. Yep. Good to see you. Right. You as well. Well, there you go, dear ones. I hope that this video was helpful and encouraging for you as it was for me. And I want to express my appreciation again to Phil for taking time out of his day to do this for us. I think it was very, very helpful. And and I also hope that this will serve as a sobering reminder to all of us about not being so quick to believe everything that we read on the Internet or to believe every rumor that we hear. Because oftentimes what is being portrayed on the Internet is quite far removed from reality and the sad reality is is that there are a lot of people out there who simply want to make a name for themselves uh, for going after um, faithful men who have some public platform and, um, and trying to bring them down. That's just the sad reality. But uh, I am very, very grateful. John, if you happen to be watching this video, I want to say to you how profoundly grateful my wife Kathy and I both are for your ministry, and I hope that this encourages you in some way to know uh, when you hear me say that I've been all over the world and I see the good fruit being born by your ministry and the ministry of Grace Community Church and Grace to You. I just see it everywhere I go. I'm so very grateful for our faithful shepherds out there, for you, John, and for so many others, uh, so many countless thousands of of other faithful men who are out there laboring away in the word uh, rightly dividing God's word of truth, faithfully shepherding their own little flocks. I'm, uh, I'm an evangelist. I travel and preach and teach. Uh, I'm not a pastor, but I have a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation for all of our faithful shepherds out there. And uh, so, John, thank you. And dear ones, thank you for watching this video. And until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.